All right, good morning, everybody. You have your Bible with you this morning? Good. Luke chapter 24 is where you need to go. Actually, Luke chapter 23, sorry. Luke chapter 23 is where you need to go. Last week, we continued this Easter Advent-like sermon series that is an effort to prepare our hearts for the big celebration of Jesus' resurrection next Sunday. Although we do celebrate his resurrection every Sunday, that's why we get together on Sunday, is in celebration of the resurrection. Uh, Two weeks ago in this sermon series, we went to the upper room. We saw Jesus preparing his disciples for his impending death and resurrection. Last week, we saw Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he agonized over his trouble, the trouble that was coming his way. In a strange way, that scene serves as a comfort to us especially when we find ourselves overwhelmed with sorrow and despair. We can look to Jesus, our Savior, and our God for help, for sympathy, for understanding in those seasons of life. We talked last week a little bit about prayer as well. There's much for us to learn from Jesus as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. About how we are free to pour our hearts out before the Lord, but also how we should be humble and submissive, trusting in his good plan as we rise from our prayer with great resolve, like Jesus did. You may remember I used this phrase, turning the corner in our prayers, from expressing our complaint, our despair, and our frustration to trusting in the Lord that we would rise with some submission and resolve, saying, nevertheless, not what I will, but your, your will be done. That's what we talked about last week. This week, we're going to go to the cross. There are a million really good ways to preach about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is, after all, the focal point of all human history and the very heart of the gospel. The way I decided to approach it today is to examine and consider the things that Jesus says while he's on the cross. Even today, in in our culture, we spend a great deal of time considering people's last words, famous last words of famous people. Now, to be clear... These are not Jesus' last words. What we're going to look at today are not Jesus' last words. They are the words he speaks just before he dies, but he doesn't stay dead. He rises from the grave, right? And he speaks a lot more words after this. Nonetheless, as he hangs on the cross dying for our sins, the things that he says in that hour of pain and suffering must be significant. So we're going to look at the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross in the Gospels today. Now... There are times when sermons are intensely practical, where there are clear action steps to follow, applications to implement at the end. Today, not really going to be like that. Rather, today, we hope to see Jesus more clearly and then respond properly to who he is with repentance and faith, with awe and wonder, with worship, and with obedience to his lordship over us. So there won't be like four takeaway things to do this week as you go home. It will more be... Behold your God and worship him as your God is kind of the direction we're going today. So let's pray that the Lord will help us as we do that. Pray with me. Father, we pray today that you will give us eyes to see Jesus, perhaps with clarity that we have never had before. And we pray that you will give us minds that can understand the things that we'll see in the text properly. And we pray that you will give us hearts and lives that respond appropriately to an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So we joked this week, kind of in preparation for this day, uh, that this is a seven-week series of sermons, and I'm going to preach in one shot. 
and that perhaps if the teenagers really wanted to raise money for their London trip, they would make their way around at some point with refreshments around 12.30 or so, uh, that, that, that they would really raise some money then. Um, so my goal today is to stay as close as I can to my notes so that, uh, so, that, so that you don't get angry with me. I'll say it that way. First thing Jesus says from the cross that we're going to look at today is, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And we see this in Luke chapter 23. We're going to look at a lot of different passages of Scripture today, and so if you're quick to turn to those, that'll be great. If not, they'll be on the screen behind me. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 33, says, When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. Now, as we work through these seven sayings, we're going to try to deal with them in chronological order today. Uh, although that's difficult with a couple of them to know which he said first or second. Um, but this one, there is no doubt, comes first. Even as they are nailing him to the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Now, there are two big things here that I want you to see. The first is this. Jesus, in saying this, is setting the tone for the entire crucifixion scene. It seems to be about forgiveness. Forgiveness that is undeserved and unexpected. So as Jesus declares from the very beginning of his crucifixion, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. He is, he is I believe, hanging that as an umbrella over the whole thing. That's what's going on on the cross is the price is being paid for us to be forgiven. John MacArthur talks about this scene a little bit when he says, Christ responded in precisely the opposite way that most men would have responded. Instead of threatening, instead of lashing back, instead of cursing his enemies, instead of calling down the judgment of God upon such an unjust act, he rather prayed to God for the forgiveness of those who unjustly took his pure life. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Because this is why he came, right? To purchase forgiveness for us. We read in John chapter 3, a passage that is super familiar to most of you. In verse 16, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. On the cross... Jesus is doing the work that is necessary for our forgiveness. This is why he came. And he declares it right from the beginning. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Secondly, Jesus notes that they don't know what they are doing. And that is interesting. What does he mean? Does he mean that the guys who are crucifying him are botching the process somehow? That they've nailed him in the wrong place at the wrong time or something like this? No, absolutely not. These were experts at execution, right? They're not doing something wrong. That's not what he's talking about. Is he perhaps saying, Father, forgive them because they don't know that I'm innocent? They don't know that they're executing an innocent man? Seems to me like when you read through the gospel accounts, just about everybody recognizes that Jesus is innocent and does not really deserve this kind of death. Even, even, Pilate, even the Roman officials recognize this. Is that what he means, Father, forgive them? They don't know what they're doing, that they're committing a crime by executing an innocent man? I don't think that's what he means. Rather... They don't know that they're executing the Son of God. And what's more, in doing so, they don't know that the door is being opened for salvation to all who will believe in Him. They don't know that they are killing their Messiah. 
And it's probably a good thing that they don't know this because if they had known this, they wouldn't have done it. And if they don't do this, there's no way for us to be reconciled to God. That's Paul's logic in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at it on the screen. Chapter 2, verse 6, he says, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age or of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom of God, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Listen to verse 8. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Right? They don't understand what they're doing, that they are crucifying, that they are executing the Son of God. And they have no clue that in doing so, they are purchasing the salvation of all who will believe in him. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing, is Jesus' first statement from the cross. Second one, I believe, the second one, is truly, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. This is in Luke chapter 23. Starting in verse 39, it says, One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. I, I like this guy, right? He's wanting to get in on whatever, whatever deliverance Jesus can bring. Save yourself and us. If you're bringing people down from the cross, bring us all down from the cross, right? But the other answered, rebuking him, and said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we... Indeed, are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Again, even the, even the criminal on the cross is recognizing this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, that is Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Today, you shall be with me in paradise. This is really interesting. And to really understand this, you need a little bit of background from Matthew. In Matthew chapter 27, we read about these two criminals. And it seems that at the beginning of the crucifixion, both of them are hurling insults at Jesus. In Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 24, this is what it says. I mean, verse 38. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, You saved others, cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Look at verse 44. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. So Matthew seems to say right at the beginning of this scene with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left, both of them are hurling insults at him. They're joining with the crowd and they are both hurling insults at him. But something changed in one of these men as he hung beside Jesus and his perspective changed. His eyes were open and he came to faith in Jesus, which is expressed in this plea for mercy and remembrance. When he says, stop doing what you're doing, don't you realize this man is innocent? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This something has changed in this man's heart. His eyes have been opened and his conversion and the promise that Jesus makes to him of paradise is a clear picture a clear affirmation that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
by grace alone, because it is very clear that this criminal has done nothing to deserve God's favor, right? He is hanging there to be executed for crimes that he admits he's committed, right? We're here, and it makes sense, he says, that we are here for the things that we have done. It is by grace through faith. This guy has done nothing, nothing to earn. He did not do any good works. In fact, he was dying for his crimes, and he never came down on this cross to do good works. This man only has faith, period. He's only got faith, and that's okay because salvation comes by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone, as he stands, as he hangs next to Jesus. There's no one else there. There's no pope. There's no church. There's just Jesus. And this man's faith is in Jesus. This guy had the right posture of humility and brokenness. He had the right kind of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He had no work, no good deeds to pad his resume, and yet Jesus gives him full assurance. Full assurance. Today, I'm telling you the truth. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. This is an incredible picture, but it raises some pastoral concerns for me because I fear that in talking about this guy who just before his death for his criminal lifestyle is given the full assurance of salvation by Jesus, that there would be some among you who are like, let me get this straight. So I can just wait until the very end And then in my final breath, cry out to Jesus for forgiveness, and he will give me the same kind of assurance and guarantee? Listen, that is true. Like if even in your last breath you cry out to Jesus in faith and repentance, he will save you. But don't wait. Don't wait for that day. How many of you know when that day is going to come? Like, oh, I'll wait till June 2nd because that's the day I'm going to die. 6.49 p.m., that's the time I'm going to cry out. No, 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 we have no clue when that day will come, and I will guarantee you, I don't know if I can guarantee this. Shouldn't have said that. I really think that when we meet this guy in paradise, he'll be like, I wasted my life. I wasted my entire life. I'm glad to be here, and I praise God for his grace, but all the years I wasted in my crime, in my selfishness, in my worldliness, I wish I could go back and live a whole life for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's glorious, to live a life. Some of you think, oh, I got saved. We're going to hear from a little guy in a while that's going to make a profession of faith, and he's got a whole lot of years ahead of him. By God's grace, we, we pray. A whole life of following after Jesus. And, and someday he's going to be tempted to say, oh, I don't have much of a testimony. I got saved when I was a little boy and I've been living with Jesus ever since. No, that's the great testimony. A life of service to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a glorious thing, right? So, so let, me, let me say it like this. This particular statement of Jesus from the cross gives us hope. Like a ton of hope. That it's, as long as you're breathing, it is not too late to cry out to Jesus for salvation. But it also gives us a word of caution not to try to wait to that moment to cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. And so I'm telling you today, repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And if you die today, great. Or if you live 70 more years serving the Lord Jesus Christ, great. But don't wait. There is no logical reason to wait. Second thing Jesus says is, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Third thing, woman, behold your son. 
Then he said to his disciple, behold your mother. This is in John chapter 19. John chapter 19, starting in verse 25. says, therefore the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. There are three things I want you to see here. Three quick things I want you to see here. First, Mary's pain at the cross as she watches her son, who is the son of God, die this terrible death. Her pain at the cross was predicted a long time ago by Simeon. You can read about that in Luke chapter 2. Simeon says a whole lot of things about Jesus, about prophecy about his life and the expectation of him. And Simeon says some cool stuff. And then at the end of his statement, he turns his attention to Mary. And this is Luke chapter 2, verse 33. I don't think I put this one on the screen. It says, And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him by Simeon. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, So Simeon locks eyes with Mary, his mother, and says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. One of the things that Simeon said in his rejoicing over the coming of the Messiah was to Mary, One day a sword is going to pierce your very soul. And I believe it's happening here at the cross as she watches her son die. A sword will pierce your own soul. And Jesus is the second thing. Not only was Mary suffering at the cross foretold long ago, but secondly, Jesus is sensitive to it. Jesus is sensitive to the needs of others, even the worldly needs of others, even as he is suffering and dying for the sins of God's people. The way I'm thinking about this is, if there was ever a time to say, I don't have the time or the energy to consider things like this. It was now, right? If there was ever a time for a man to say, I don't have time to deal with who's going to watch after my mom. I'm dying for the sins of the world here, right? It was now. But even as he dies for the sins of all of his people, he is aware of the needs of his mother. He is concerned about his mother, and that is significant, and it shows the importance of these family connections. Jesus is sensitive to the needs of others, even as he suffers and dies for the sins of God's people. Thirdly, Jesus prioritizes the spiritual family over the physical family. Jesus prioritizes the spiritual family over the physical family. You've got to look at this closely and observe that Jesus had other brothers. Jesus had half-brothers who, according to the culture and tradition, would have been the ones who would take over the care of Mary. Like Jesus is the oldest brother amongst others, right? James and Jude and others. And it would make sense that he would hand the care of his mother off to one of them, but he doesn't. At the cross, as he's watching over the care of his mother, he doesn't hand her off to a physical brother. He hands her off to a spiritual brother. Why? Because those other brothers of his are still unbelieving at this point. You remember the scene a couple weeks ago in Sunday school when they came to him and and Jesus was teaching the crowd and they said, "Uh, Master, your mother and brothers are outside. And they were there basically to get him out and say he's crazy. They wanted to get him out of all this. And you remember what Jesus says? Who is my mother and brothers? 
Like he recognizes their unbelief and he says, who is my mother and brothers? And then he says, behold, my mother and brothers, those who do the will of God. That's my real family, right? And he's doing the same thing here from the cross as he says to John, who is his spiritual brother, although not blood brother, he's his spiritual brother. He says, woman, behold your son and son, behold your mother. And from that moment on, Mary is entrusted to John's care and not James's. This is highly significant because Jesus here is is prioritizing the spiritual family over the physical family. Now, by God's grace, some of those brothers of his are going to become believers after the resurrection. But at this point, he is looking out for not just his mom's body, but her soul. Because it seems like she's a believer. She's with the other believers, even here at the cross. And she's going to be with the believers before the resurrection. She seems to have already come around and is trusting in him. And so he entrusts her to the spiritual family. Now that... That's a significant lesson, and it's more significant in other contexts than it is ours, but it's a big deal. So those three things to see from Jesus saying, behold your son and behold your mother, to John and to Mary. Uh, What are we on? Four? We're moving. We're going to make it. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is in Matthew chapter 27. Starting in verse 45, it says, Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. This is huge. This statement of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is huge. And there are two things I want you to see here. First, this is a cry of desperation from the one who is bearing the sins of his people. This is a cry of desperation from the one who is bearing the sins of God's people. John MacArthur says it like this. As Christ was hanging there, bearing the sins of the whole world, dying as a substitute for sinners, to him was imputed all the guilt of their sins. And he was suffering the punishment of the wrath of God for all of the sins of all who would ever believe. God is literally pouring out divine wrath on Christ in that sense. He is forsa- in that sense, he is forsaken by God. In some mysterious way during those awful hours on the cross as the Father pours out the full fury of His wrath against sin on His own beloved Son, the Son feels forsaken. This is the moment where Jesus is crying out about bearing the sins of His people and suffering the wrath of God because of it. The Bible says He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And this is what's happening here. The Bible says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastening from God for our peace was on Him, and by His stripes we are healed. The Bible says, He suffered the just for the unjust. This is the picture of atonement and propitiation. As Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He is the substitute who is taking our sins and suffering in our place. That's the first thing. Second thing is that this is a cry of lament. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 22 here. Psalm 22 starts out like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And in Jesus' day, there was no number on that psalm. If you wanted to make reference to a psalm, you referenced the first line of the psalm. And so he's basically saying to the world, read Psalm 22 and you'll understand what's going on here. It is clearly a messianic psalm. It is the very picture of what is happening on the cross down to some fine details about his clothes. But Psalm 22 is not just a messianic psalm. It is a psalm of lament. And, and God has tuned my ears to that recently uh, through a book that I read called Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy. It's about the importance of lament in the scriptures and the importance of lament in our own lives. About how we must turn to God in our sorrow, in our pain, in our anguish. We must turn to God and we are free to complain to God. To complain to God, to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are they treating me like this? Why is all of this happening? It doesn't seem right and it doesn't seem fair. There is freedom in the scriptures, from the scriptures, to complain and then to ask God to fix it. To vindicate, to save, to rescue, to deliver. We turn to God, we complain to God, we ask of God to work in a way that is consistent with his character, and then in lament, we trust him to do it. And we see all of this playing out in Psalm 22 with the voice of Jesus as he's hanging on the cross in many ways. Jesus is lamenting here, lamenting this whole situation, not just declaring what is happening as far as atonement and propitiation go, but he is lamenting his heart's pain in saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's huge. Number five, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. And this comes from John chapter 19. John chapter 19, starting in verse 28 says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Now there is less here to preach than in the other sayings, but there are a few things to notice. Three. <laughs> Three things to notice here. First, Jesus is thirsty because he's a man like us. You get thirsty? He got thirsty. Our Savior our Redeemer, our Messiah, our God knows what it's like to be thirsty. And therefore, he can relate to us and our physical needs. Secondly, earlier in the process of crucifixion, he had refused to take a drink. He had refused to take a drink of a concoction that most scholars believe would have been some type of uh, anesthesia of sort. Like it would have been, been pain-numbing kind of drink that would have delivered him from a certain amount of the suffering. He refuses to drink that, and most scholars comment that he refused that drink because his intention was to feel everything, to suffer it all on our behalf. But now, he says he's thirsty, and he takes a drink, and the third thing I want you to see here is that what they give him to drink is at least an unpleasant thing to drink. It was vinegar, essentially. So, so he's thirsty, and what seems to be some kind of act of compassion, they give him a drink. They give him a drink of vinegar. How many of you want that to drink? And there may be an even deeper insult going on here. There are some scholars that think that this is basically the equivalent of like a, like a dirty baby wipe that they're offering to him to drink. This may be like an ultimate insult. As Jesus says, I need something to drink, they say, oh, you need something to drink? Here, here's something you can drink. See if you can get some liquid out of that. 
disgusting scene, a nasty scene, where Jesus not only is identifying with us in our need, our physical needs, but he is taking the insult from the very people he came to save. Then, he says, it is finished. Further on in John chapter 19, starting in verse 30, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is huge too. Jesus says, it is finished. Where's Toy? Is Toy still in here? Toy, stand up. Toy Dixon, stand up, man. Toy Dixon, I will not tell you how old he is because I think he lies to me about how old he is. But you see that orange shirt he's got on? He earned that shirt yesterday. As one of 16 of your First Baptist brothers and sisters who ran the River to River Relay, right? Eight people on a team, 80 miles apiece, thousands of feet of elevation gain. And you only get that shirt if you finish. You only get a shirt like that if you finish. They don't give you that shirt until the finish line. Now, at any point, Toy could have said, it's over. Any point before the finish line, and he almost did, and I almost did, and everybody who ran almost said, it's over. I'm done. Right? That's a different statement than it's finished. I'm done. It's over. Or it is finished. Those are radically different statements. And Jesus says it is finished. It is complete. It is accomplished. That's when you get a shirt like that. At the finish line when the goal has been met. And that's what Jesus has done on the cross. He didn't get as far as he could get and then quit. He didn't say, I'm done. He finished the work. He completed the task. Jesus did all that was necessary for you and I to be saved. Jesus didn't just make salvation possible on the cross. Jesus didn't just make salvation possible on the cross. He actually accomplished salvation fully for all who will believe in him. He didn't get part of the way and then ask you to fill in the blank. He did it all. So repent of your sins and believe in him today. His work is sufficient. It is finished. And he declares it. And it's one word, one word in the Greek. And he says it with a loud voice so that everyone around can hear it. It is finished. Believe in him because he's done all the work. And then the final thing that he says is in Luke chapter 23, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 44. It was about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured. And the veil of the temple was torn in two. Maybe I should have preached that today, right? The veil of the temple was torn in two. Suddenly there's access, bold access, because of the death of Jesus to the presence of God. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. First thing I want you to notice is that this is now the second time, just before he dies, that he says something with a loud voice. That is not something you expect from the victim of crucifixion to be able to do. Because victims of crucifixion die by suffocation. And if you are suffocating, you cannot get a breath enough to cry out anything with a loud voice. If you say anything as a victim of crucifixion, you say it in a whisper. 
And yet twice, at the very end of his life, Jesus cries out with a loud voice. I think this is clear evidence that it wasn't ultimately crucifixion that killed Jesus. It wasn't ultimately crucifixion that killed Jesus. In fact, I think there's evidence for this in a number of ways because he died long before anybody expected him to die. Do you remember how all this shakes out? Like it gets toward the evening and they're like, the Jews come and they're like, hey, we've got to deal with these bodies before it gets dark um, because we can't leave them hanging there because tomorrow's a Sabbath day and, and it's like a big time Sabbath day. And so they plan to go break their legs. Do you remember this? To speed up the process. But when they come, Jesus is already dead. Those other two guys are still alive and Jesus is dead and therefore they don't break his bones, but they shove the spear into his side and out comes water and blood because he's already dead. Because it wasn't ultimately crucifixion that killed Jesus. It's the wrath of God against the sins of man that ultimately killed Jesus. Jesus crying out with a loud voice, I think, is evidence that it wasn't ultimately crucifixion that killed Jesus. I think it also shows that Jesus' life was not taken from him. Rather, he gave it away. Jesus' life was not taken from him by Roman soldiers or Jewish leaders. He gave his life. Look at John chapter 10, starting in verse 17. For this reason, Jesus says, The Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. I think the fact that he cries out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and then he gave up the ghost, King James. Right? It wasn't taken from him. He gave his life for us. John MacArthur says, says it like this. He gave it up willingly. Gave it up willingly for those he loved. For you and for me. And when he finally expired on the cross, it was not with a wrenching struggle against the nails. It was not with a wrenching thrust upward and downward trying to grasp, gasp for some air as he was being asphyxiated as his body hanging limp suffocated his lungs. He didn't die displaying some frenzied death throes. His final passage into death, like every aspect of the crucifixion drama, was a deliberate act of his own sovereign will. John says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit quietly and submissively. Jesus, our submissive, willing sacrifice. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Those are the seven things that Jesus says from the cross as he dies for you and me. So therefore, I say to you, behold your God. Behold your God, Jesus, the suffering servant. Jesus, the submissive sacrifice. Jesus, the sympathetic high priest. Jesus, the sovereign savior of all who will believe in him. Therefore, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. There is no other way. He did this for us so that we could be reconciled to God. Repent and believe. That's number one. Number two, worship him. This God of yours died for you. Worship him. Praise his name. Celebrate him with all that you have. This week is our week. This is Holy Week, my grandma always called it. This is like the Super Bowl for us. We get all excited about Christmas. I'm telling you, this is better. This is Gospel Week. 
Jesus died and was buried and was raised again. And if you don't come in here next Sunday morning ready to rejoice over that, there is something wrong with you. Stay home. This is our week. We worship Jesus because he died for us and rose again. Worship him. And then third thing, tell the world about this. Tell the world about this because he didn't just die for us. There's a multitude that no one can number from every tribe and tongue and people and nation that he died for. Tell the world about this suffering servant, this submissive sacrifice, this sympathetic high priest, this sovereign savior. Tell the world about the hope that is found in Christ, in Christ alone. Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for Jesus our suffering servant, our submissive sacrifice, our sympathetic high priest, our suffering savior. Pray for men and women and boys and girls who are here, who are lost and dead in their sins. I pray that you give them faith to trust in Jesus, repentance to turn away from their sin, and to give them boldness and courage even, courage even to stand before the world and profess you as their savior. For those who have repented, and believed are repenting and believing. Help us to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and to tell the world about the hope that is found in him alone. Help us respond rightly to what we have seen of Jesus today. By your grace, we pray it for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.